chronic suffering leads one to acknowledge um, one's need for God and one's dependence upon God. And so every day when I'm dealing with the sorts of things that I deal with, uh, I find myself in constant prayer to God and have ever since the accident. And that is a, an, a tremendous blessing. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Suffering. Suffering is not a fun subject. In fact, you might be tempted to skip this episode or just simply turn it off. Go back to listen to one that you really like or simply wait for the next episode to come out. Don't do that because this episode is for you and me. I know it is because I'm experiencing it myself. If COVID has done anything, it has shown us just really how frail we really are. We see anxiety at all-time high. We see people that are living paycheck to paycheck. There's all of this division going on within our world today to simply go online and you just want to get off and turn off your phone and not have any engagement whatsoever. And some of us are simply just dealing with the day-to-day issues of life. And we find ourselves suffering. You know, I don't like to read about suffering. It's not fun. It's not something that I go and seek to do. But I do know this. The Bible is filled with example of example after example of people who are suffering. And I think one of the great injustices of the modern day church is that we have put down suffering. I'm not saying that we go out and embrace it. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying is, is we're failing to understand how God uses suffering in our sanctification to draw us closer to himself. We've lost that. We don't want it. And then we wonder why God's not there. It's because we don't embrace the mechanisms and means that he has placed within our lives to draw us closer to himself. And that's why I wanted to bring Mark Talbot on the show today. This isn't a guy who knows it theoretically, although he does, but it's a man who has experienced it at a very deep level chronically over the entirety of his adult life. I want you to listen into this conversation. And find comfort, find joy, find peace, and find purpose, and find your story in the midst of God's. And we can even have conversations like this because of listeners like you. And so this February, I have a challenge for you. We're looking for 10 new watering partners who would give at least $10 a month. Now, that's not much. That's actually just two two coffees at Starbucks. That is not too much to ask for. And I'm looking for some new watering partners from Tennessee. I see Tennessee because you guys are listening to the show like crazy. I don't know what's going on in Tennessee, but I love to see that people are getting the vision of the Missio Holistic approach. I want to thank you for listening in. And now I want to see you even further. Go online to apolloswater.org, click the support us button, and simply click the amount that works for you. We want to to water souls around the world. And we're bringing water to the desert places of our modern world. But without further ado, 
Let's get to my conversation with Mark Talbot. Happy listening. Mark Talbot, welcome to Apollo's Water. Good to be here. Are you ready for the Fast Five? I don't know, but uh, let's try it. All right, here, number one, Elon Musk or wow. Jeff Bezos <laughs> and why? Neither. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that one out there. That seemed like a fun question. I had no idea why it would be a fun question, but yeah, whatever. Some of them work, some of them don't. Okay, second question. My wife and kids say that my most annoying habit is... Wow, a good question. I think we should probably haul my wife in here. Hmm. Phone a friend. Um, (laughs) my guess is that it would be that I get so deeply into what I'm thinking about that it takes a lot to pull me out and actually to be able to hear them. Oh, I understand that one. I I think my wife might agree with that. Number three, the one thing that people don't know about me is that you can share on a podcast. (laughs) Right, right, right. I think that yeah, unless, whatever, <laughs> yeah, I think unless you have encountered me in classes or, or elsewhere, you wouldn't uh, recognize that I laugh just a whole lot, even when I'm alone. The great Archbishop of uh, Canterbury, William Temple, said that he wouldn't trust a theologian who didn't have a sense of humor. And it seems to me that, in fact, what uh, laughing does is it reframes how we are thinking about ourselves. And so I find that laughter is really, really important, particularly if I have a sense of something that I've done that isn't the way that I'd like it to be. Laughing at myself allows me to take myself less seriously and move on. I think everybody would do a little bit better with laughing at themselves. That helps. I think it relaxes you. It helps you not take things so seriously. The world needs a little bit more laughter out there. Number four, you are a philosophy professor. So. I'm going to get a little detailed with this question. (laughs) If if you could hang out with any philosopher in history today, who would it be? Why would you hang out with that person? And there's a third part. And where would you hang out at? What would you be doing? (laughs) Wow. We have to create the scene. This is where the questions. I mean, it's not fast five. Now it's the slow five. Yeah. (laughs) Really, really good question. And I'm not sure that there is a decisive answer. If I were to hang out with the person that I think might be able to teach me the most, if I could get him out of his shell, it would probably be Thomas Aquinas, Hmm. um, a remarkable thinker who in many more ways than most Protestants realize, really, as he got older, understood scripture better and better and quote scripture more and more and other authorities less and less. You can read sections of his commentary on Galatians or Ephesians, and if you don't know it's Aquinas, you'd think it was John Calvin. And he writes a kind of lapidary prose, which just doesn't have any extra words whatsoever. So under certain circumstances, I think that's who I would hang out with. Um, My guess is that we'd have to do it in some small room in a monastery somewhere probably because uh, <laughs> because that's where Aquinas would be most comfortable. I think Aristotle would be awfully interesting. 
for reasons that have to do with his understanding a lot about human life in such a way that God showed him a kind of common grace and how to think about things that, of course, Aquinas then picked up on and baptized in a deep way. It wasn't that Aristotle took over Aquinas. It was instead that Aquinas took over Aristotle for Christian purposes. If we were to talk about modern philosophers, I suppose it would be Roger Scruton, who recently died, uh, and did remarkable work in all sorts of philosophy, and uh, particularly on human persons. Um, my guess is that among the places that we'd hang out would be in an opera house because he wrote opera, or maybe in a great museum uh, because he had such an interest in beauty, or if not Scruton, probably Charles Taylor. Oh, secular age. Secular age. That'd be yeah. a, an interesting conversation. Where would you hang out with him at? I don't know. My guess is somewhere in Canada. Yeah, in Canada, <laughs> having some poutine or something like that. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number five. If your life were a movie, what would be the name of it and who would play you? Well, from the outside, my guess is that people might think that the movie's title would be Disaster. <laughs> Given the number of things that, um, that I've had to deal with over the years, and particularly my accident when I was 17, when I fell about 50 feet off a rope and broke my back, perhaps somebody like Tom Hanks, who takes, or interestingly enough, even George Clooney, uh, two fellows who I think take life pretty seriously, even though they're secular people, and who therefore, I think, would be able to understand kind of the depth of what I think my life has been about, even though they're not Christians. Mm, that's an interesting one. Starring George Clooney and disaster. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how that would work very well. It's Tom Hanks and disaster. I mean, who knows? Hanks can play anything. He yeah, yeah, and Hanks has been character. in war movies that that involve disasters. So <laughs> Hanks would be probably pretty good. I mean, this, this is the man in Big and Saving Private Ryan and Bosom Buddies. I right, mean, right, right, right. <laughs> the full range. Forrest Gump. I mean, come on. <laughs> right, right. It's crazy to think about all the stuff that he's done. And anyway. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let you, you've alluded a little bit to your story. For, for those who don't know you, so let's fill in the gaps. Let's hear the Mark Talbot story. I mean, we know that you're a professor and an author. You teach philosophy and you have written about suffering, which we're going to get to in a moment. But let's hear a little bit about your story. As you've already alluded, you broke your back when you were 17, but a little bit about where you grew up and how you got to where you're at today. Spent my first seven years in Warren, Ohio. My dad was mechanical engineer. He was uh, at that point hired by Boeing out in Seattle. Boeing was expanding quite a lot back in those years. He was an expert with regard to welding and they were trying to figure out if they could weld the skin onto an airplane instead of rivet it on uh, because it would be immensely lighter. Turned out they've never been able to do that or at least twice they weren't during the time that he was there. We moved to Edmonds, Washington. We lived 500 feet from Puget Sound. Uh, we had to head across just one lot, a vacant lot, uh, over the railroad tracks, which ran along uh, Puget Sound there, and had what was more or less a private beach because nobody else could get to it. And of course, a beach can't be private. It's public property, but we were the only ones who basically could get to it, the people in the neighborhood. 
We had a creek that ran down the lot beside us that had um, fingerling fish and rainbow trout and then a wood that was behind us. It was an idyllic life. I was, how should we put it? I was precocious, but not disciplined. Was capable of doing really rather original thinking. I won a big science fair award when I was in junior high on acceleration versus pregnancy, which was uh, about oviviviparous, viviparous, and oviparous animals and what happened if you sent them up in model rockets with regard to what happened to their gestation. So I was capable of doing some pretty significant work, but I never learned any discipline. I raced go-karts and quarter midgets and uh, loved the adrenaline rush that came with doing things like that. What uh, it more or less came to before I had my accident at right at the end of my junior year in high school was that I realized that I was in really serious trouble, Travis. And the trouble was that I was a year away from going to college. And I knew that I wouldn't have any problem getting into the University of Washington. In fact, I'd done some research down there already with some professors, but I was quite sure that I wouldn't be able to get through even a year of college because I'd be too undisciplined. Uh, I was worried about the, the aspects of my life that involved just doing reckless, dangerous things, such as driving down back roads, um, at breakneck speeds just because I enjoyed that sort of stuff. And so at the end of my junior year, I found myself thinking that my life was going to, in fact, be a major failure. And that was when I had this accident. A friend of mine and me had built this, um, and I had built this rope swing. Um, we had to, uh, we built a crossbow so that we could shoot a piece of twine through a tree that was far out over a bank pulled the twine through, pulled thicker and thicker ropes through until we had a two inch thick rope, um, uh, hooked up this rope swing where you started from 10 feet up on a platform on a tree. There was about 10 feet of dirt below that. And then there was a cliff that dropped off. The thing was exceedingly fast. You, We had a round seat on it. And if you didn't land on the seat, you couldn't hang on. It went so fast. And I just enjoyed the thrill of riding that thing, I would, it had a very long arc, I would, in fact, hold myself off the seat until I got out to the far end with my feet over my head, and then hit the seat and come back spinning. The first time you couldn't get off because you were too close to the tree. The second time you had to, because if you had waited, then when the rope would hesitate, it would have been about a 30 foot drop. Well, there came a point where I had jumped on as a third person, one person on the rope, a second person over that person, a third person jumped on the first time back. I had been the only one who had done it. And I had a younger friend who was 15, who was a great athlete. And he said, I'd like to try that. And so one evening, right before twilight, I said, okay, that's all right. So I was on the seat. Uh, my older friend was uh, uh, straddled me and we came back and our younger friend hesitated, uh, didn't jump until the rope had more or less stopped, so it meant it was moving away from him by the time uh, he reached me. I was holding onto him with one hand, holding onto the rope with the other. We got out to the far side of the, of the arc, and I realized that he and I were going to fall. And the only thing I thought was, if I fall on him, I'll kill him. 
So I shoved him off one way and it turned out that uh, that meant that I was peeled off and my shoulders hit first and my feet went over my head. Uh, it was twilight. It was just starting to head toward darkness. He had slid in the mud where this little creek was. I was holding him down because I knew he had to be hurt. So I think it was about 50 feet. It's hard to tell exactly what the distance was. Once I had him slowed down, I looked and I saw that my legs were in this creek and I wasn't feeling anything. And I knew immediately that I had broken my back. There was a fellow uh, called Brian Sternberg, who in, 19, in the early 1960s had pioneered fiberglass poles for the pole vault at the University of Washington. Uh, he was on Life magazine cover for a couple of times and had the world pole vault record at that point. Brian had been practicing his landings on a trampoline, had lost his orientation one time and had broken his neck and was a quadriplegic. And I had met Brian and uh, knew immediately that I had done basically the same thing to myself lower down on my back than he had done higher up. Here's the interesting thing. I immediately felt God's love for me and that this was, in fact, uh, a blessing to me. And it was tied to the way that I had felt my life was going to head in a really disastrous way forward if it went on the way that it had been going on. More or less what happened was that as I hit the ground and realized what had happened to me, all of the distractions of life fell away. And I began to realize I'm going to have to be serious about life. I'm going to have to uh, work at this business of being an appropriate human being. I spent six months in the hospital. And when I got out, I was walking with one to two canes, uh, went to college a year and three months later. And it really was a blessing. One thing that I've found over the years, since of course, there are things that constantly go wrong with anybody who's paraplegic, is that chronic suffering leads one to acknowledge one's need for God and one's dependence upon God. And so every day when I'm dealing with the sorts of things that I deal with, I find myself in constant prayer to God and have ever since the accident. And that is a, an, a tremendous blessing. Ultimately, the only thing that is going to satisfy us is being in personal communion with the God of the universe, particularly in his son. And what my accident started to do for me immediately and has done ever since, is it put me in that kind of personal communion and holds me there. We're gonna take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. 
That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. And so, so your parents then were Christians. Uh, they had become Christians after we went out to Seattle, and I had become a Christian when I was 12 uh, because I was frightened by uh, some things that I was doing. But it didn't take deeply. I mean, I was in church. I was in Sunday school. I was even at times uh, preaching because I was uh, precocious enough that they'd occasionally let me preach when I was 15 or 16 years old. But that was an aspect of my life. It wasn't integral to my life in the way that my relationship with God became after the accident. You, you mentioned in the book, you, you talk about after the accident, I mean, you had a series of other issues. You, you mentioned, and I, I, forgive me if I don't get all of it correct, but you, you mentioned about crawling on your, your arms. Yeah. And- yeah. When I went to the rehab hospital after the first six weeks, the way that they were trying to retrain me so that I could walk was they put knee pads on me and had me crawl to breakfast. And the idea was this was in 1967. So you had people who had been in the Vietnam War and and they were trying these new ways of trying to get people repatterned. And that was one of the ways that they tried to get me repatterned. When I was in the hospital, I had one long leg brace and one short leg brace. I remember the first time that I took a spill when I was up with forearm crutches at the time. My PT, who was less than five feet tall, just a wonderful, wonderful woman, uh, said that she watched from a distance. And the only thing she thought was timber because I'm 6'4". I had gone from 210 pounds to 145 pounds. I looked like I had been in a concentration camp. But the interesting thing was this, Travis, for the six months in the hospital, I hardly touched a Bible or anything else. And yet my sense of God's presence became very strong and it became strongest when I would do something like take a spill Uh, because then I would realize, okay, now what I need to do is I need to manifest the fact that I am trusting in God and uh, show that this sort of, shall we say, small term disaster and taking a fall or something was not going to cause me to panic. Mm. And so I would feel God's presence when things went wrong and when I was trying to set them right. You mentioned in the book, the crawling on the knee pads, but then you had issues like with a catheter and urine. Yeah. Is that right? So yeah. Like- yeah. No, I had a, a catheter issue um, when I was in the hospital. They had expected that I wasn't going to walk again at all. And so they had given me what's called a Foley cath, which has a balloon that they would blow up at the end of the catheter to hold it in place. It had, in fact, formed a calcium deposit around it. When they took the thing out, I had more or less insisted they take it out five weeks in. They said, well, we don't think you're going to be able to urinate. I said, "Uh, if you don't take it out, I'm going to take it out. When they took it out, there was a lot of blood. Nobody knew what had happened. I was able by thinking eight to 10 hours a day and drinking a lot of water to get to the place I could urinate again. But I was plagued with these horrible 
um, bladder infections the whole time I was in the hospital. And the last week, they um, were checking my kidneys to see if uh, they could see what was wrong that was causing the bladder infections. They saw this shadow in my bladder, which in fact was this unbroken calcium deposit. And so they went in and took that out, which basically stopped the the infections and i was able to go without catheters for many years i took a spill in the uh, fall of um, uh, in september of 2016 and broke my my left hip coming out of my study at um, 7 a.m on, uh, on a saturday morning and that has landed me in a wheelchair ever since and it has led to other things such as once again having to have to use catheters and all those sorts of things it's interesting how even that sort of stuff can be a way of reminding me of my dependence upon God and finding, finding my communion with him to be so central to who I am that if God were to appear, let's say Jesus were to appear before me today and say, look at, uh, I'll take away all the effects of your accident. You can walk and run again and all those sorts of things. Do you want it? I think my answer would be no. And it would be no because it's actually been through the chronicness of the suffering that uh, he's held me close. Always find joy in the smallest of things That is what we found in you Oh, 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 you are joy Never give up when the going gets rough Hope is everything you need Oh, 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 you are hope Oh, 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 you are hope you mentioned something in the second volume. You quote the gospel where Jesus says it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you talk about the word rich, not just meaning monetarily. Yes. But a variety of different things. You want to elaborate on that? Because I found that to be a very fascinating insight. Yeah, I was actually quoting C.S. Lewis there, who wanted to say that the, the picture there of wealth was more or less just a metaphor for in any way whatsoever feeling as if our life is satisfactory. And what Lewis wanted to say was that God takes away good things from us in such a way that we realize, no, uh, what, what we have is not enough. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, um, uh, talks in one place, and I quote him in the second volume, about rich people, and this is a couple of centuries ago, so it's before cars, but it's when people had carriages, talking about rich people riding in their, in their carriages at night with lights on the side of the carriage, um, which illuminate inside the carriage, but don't allow them to see the stars. Mm. And in fact, what we need to see are the stars that are supposed to guide us. That's why my first volume is called When the Stars Disappear. I, I take the picture from Acts 27 and 28, where Paul uh, encountered this horrible storm on the Mediterranean Sea and uh, saw neither sun nor moon nor the stars for over two weeks. And the concern was 
that uh, here they are in the middle of the Mediterranean. There's a place called the Sergis, which is kind of shoals that are in the middle of the Mediterranean. If they were driven against that by the storm, the boat would have broken up. They would have all died. Within that framework, God came to Paul and said, you're all going to be all right if you stay on board. So when the stars disappear, we find ourselves panicking. We find ourselves not able to orient ourselves to life. We need the stars of both our personal stories, the stories that tell us where we came from, where we are, where we want to go, and the stars of a great general story that tells us what the meaning of human life is, what human beings are for. We need all of that sort of stuff. What I'm riffing on, in a sense, in the second volume with regard to Kierkegaard and with regard to Lewis is the fact that we as human beings just tend to be satisfied with what we have in this life if it is in any sense satisfactory. And so God, as Lewis makes clear in The Problem of Pain, God will take those things away in such a way that then we look up. My way of putting it is that we look up and we look for the stars that are supposed to orient us. And within that framework, by God's grace, we may find that the only stars that are adequate to orient us are found in God's full Christian story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That'll preach. <laughs> That'll preach. Because even when I, when I read that, the title, and at first I thought, okay, what, what is that? And then, and then you mentioned that, and I went, wow, that is, that is what suffering does. It totally disorients you by taking away those things that are often fixed that we determine our life by, and it does call us to call on God. And this is, this is where I, I found myself very intrigued as I started to read your book. And it's not just a book. You have two volumes done, and I'm, I'm about three quarters through the second volume. But why four volumes on suffering? I mean, most people have a hard time picking up one volume on suffering because they're either afraid that they're going to suffer. So they don't want to read it. It's kind of like praying for patience. You know, that's going to, that's what's going to happen. But why four volumes on the, the, the topic of suffering? Well, initially it was going to be one volume, but what struck me as I worked on it was that saying all of what I thought needed to be said was going to take about 600 pages. And it struck me that when people are suffering, and I mean the first volume really to address people who are in the midst of suffering, and probably in the midst of what I call profound suffering, which is suffering, which is such that it is so intense that it leads us to question virtually everything that we have uh, guided ourselves by in the past. When people are in profound suffering, they don't need a 600-page tome in front of them. So I initially suggested a crossway. I said, why don't we cut it into two pieces? And I knew that there were going to be four parts to it. I'll give you the parts in just a minute. But I knew there were going to be four parts. And they said, sure. But then um, this is right before Christmas that I was talking to them about three or four years ago to change the contract for, for two volumes instead of one. It struck me that, no, no, we actually need four volumes here. I don't want to give people 300 pages either. So the way that it goes is that the first volume is trying to help Christians or anybody else who is willing to read it to see that Scripture has a whole lot to say about suffering. One of my points is that we tend, particularly I think in the West, to read Scripture in such a way 
that we miss what it says about suffering. And yet scripture says an immense amount about suffering. It's when you suffer that you start to see those cases. And so what I mean to handle in the first volume, after talking about what profound suffering is, talking about the fact that we need a personal story to guide us in our individual lives and a general story that backs up the way that our personal story it's, it's the context within which our personal story is lived. Once I've talked about that, I talk about Naomi and about Job and about Jeremiah in the second chapter and try to deal with the intensity of their suffering. And so I stop the second chapter having got to the place where, for instance, Naomi, as she goes back into Bethlehem, and is uh, seen by these uh, women that she's known all of her life after having lost her husband and her two married sons when they had migrated to Moab because there had been a famine in Bethlehem. When the famine lifted and she comes back to Bethlehem, the women who see her uh, ask, is this Naomi? Mm -hmm. Now, that can mean one of two things. That can mean that they're just surprised to see her. It'd be like my seeing you in the future and saying, mm -hmm. is that Travis? Mm -hmm. But uh, no doubt that it is Travis. Or it could be that she was so transfigured by her grief that they couldn't recognize her. Mm -hmm. But you remember what Naomi's answer is. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For my life has been bitter. She wants a permanent name change because she thinks that her life could never possibly be good again, which is often what happens to us in profound suffering, that we can't see our way forward to, to when things will change. Think of what Job says. Job says at one point, my eye will never again see good. Mm. Jeremiah. First 20 chapters of Jeremiah seem to be chronological. And in the 20th chapter, it seems that he has been tortured by Pasher put on a rack overnight where he has been tortured and he uh, accuses God of having deceived him with regard to what his ministry was going to be like. Jeremiah had, had assumed that if God was going to protect his ministry, was going to meet him as he was God's prophet, that nobody would ever really lay a hand on him. And uh, what happened in chapter 20 is that somebody laid a hand on him and he wants to resign his office. And so he uh, more or less says, God, I don't want any more of this. Well, I end the second chapter at that depth uh, with each of the three. And the reason is I don't want people reading that and immediately going on to things getting better mm -hmm. because then they won't see the depth of the suffering in scripture. And among other things, they won't be capable of meeting people who are suffering deeply and knowing when to speak and when not to speak, when to recognize that at the beginning of profound suffering, that even that, that most Christians uh, are not going to be able to find their way forward. So I wanted people to be stopped in the depth of their grief. Then I have a third chapter, which is on lament in the Psalms which is more or less, I call it breathing lessons on how to breathe mm -hmm. when one is suffering deeply. The fourth chapter, I finally picked back up on Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah's stories. And of course, for Naomi, she's just wrong. By the time the uh, son of Boaz and Ruth is put in her arms in chapter four, 
the name Naomi is is appropriate again. Her life is pleasant again. She's not going to forget what happened to her in losing her husband or losing her boys, but her life is pleasant again. She can smile. She can see that God is good. Of course, Job uh, ends up with more than he ever had before in the last chapter. Once again, he's not going to forget having lost his children and how awful things are, but God has restored him to a position of things being wonderful again. Interestingly enough, with Jeremiah, it never happens. In chapter 21, there's another pasture. It's not the pasture of chapter 20. And Jeremiah from chapter 21 till the end of the book is a faithful witness to what God wants him to witness to, despite the fact that he's thrown in a cistern, and all sorts of other things. In his whole life, he had only four people who in any way identified with him and helped him. Uh, We don't even uh, get notice of his death at the end of the book. It just breaks off. And so what, what Jeremiah, if you read Jeremiah, you labor your way through Jeremiah, you realize that the book is written as if um, in the same way that people who have been through something really, really awful can't write coherent stories. So Jeremiah's very story lacks chronological coherence as um, as a kind of witness to just how hard his life was. But God was gracious to him in helping him after chapter 20, never to step away again from the call that God had given him to witness to Israel of what was going to happen to them because of their faithlessness. What my eyes cannot see Or has the antidote to brokenness evaded me Could I believe in what my ears have not heard Or will the suffering that surrounds me have the final word There's so many things that you've already said. They were actually questions I was going to ask. I mean, why, why Naomi? Why Job? No problem. Everyone knows <laughs> Job and suffering. I mean, the man has become, you know, Job has become a synonym for suffering. Whenever you hear the book of Job, people are like, I don't want to talk about it. I know it's suffering. I don't. I and the surprising Naomi was one that I was, I was actually very happy to read when you were doing it. And, and you mentioned in the book, you said, it takes us to go from chapter one and it takes us three chapters to get to a resolution. But with Job, there was 38 chapters before we get to a resolution. And then I actually really did appreciate the fact that Jeremiah, there wasn't a resolution because that's how often suffering is within our world today. When you write about suffering, you you've done something that I've never encountered before. You're a very unique writer in that you you brought me into imagery with well-known stories and had me thinking about them in ways that I'd never thought about before. You you brought insight. That was number one. But two, you and I we we talked about this in the pre-show walkthrough. You put a reader's guide right in near the end. And, you, <laughs> and I, I've never had this before. I've never encountered this before. And I and I told you in the pre-show walkthrough, who does that? I mean, who puts a this is how you're to read my book. First time through, you read it. Second time through, look up the scriptures. Third time through, look up the footnotes. And I thought, what what in the world? So I started reading it. And as I got into it, then I started to understand. Your footnotes are the most, or endnotes are the most robust 
detailed end notes I've ever seen in that you can't, I mean, you can grasp the gist of the story, but you get a full flavor, a weighty flavor when you digest that. What made you write the book in that way? It was actually part of the negotiations with Crossway as against with other people that they'd allow me to do that with the end notes. There are some short footnotes that are just clarifying things that are in the immediate text. But the idea was that uh, I wanted to give people the basic storyline in the first book of personal suffering in the second book of what I call the full Christian story. I wanted to give people the basic storyline and one which any Christian, if and not even just Christians, but anyone could follow if they were just willing to read it. But then what I wanted was the end notes to enrich the basic storyline in such a way that people would realize that, wow, there's a lot more for me to think about here that fills in the picture that makes the Christian revelation the marvelous thing that it is. If I had put that in the text, it would have uh, distracted from getting the basic storyline across. Carl Truman mentioned uh, in one of the interviews that, that he had with me, first book is only 99 pages long as far as the basic text. Uh, and, and that's intentional. I want people to be able to get through that stuff. What I tell my students, I told them just yesterday because classes started up again, is that they are not going to understand any of the texts that we're dealing with unless they read them at least four times. The first time you kind of read through with nothing in your hand, you don't want to be marking the text up. You just read through more or less almost skimming so that your mind is starting to get a kind of sense of the terminology and so on of a given piece of text, usually a chapter at a time or something like that. The second time through, what you're trying to do is uh, um, isolate the basic structure. So, for instance, with C.S. Lewis, with the problem of pain, the first chapter, which is only 15 pages long, has three primary pieces to it. And so I told my students yesterday, I need you to find those pieces. Um, I, I want you to tell me where the second one starts and where the third one starts. And what you do is you read it through and you're constantly asking, what's the author doing now? 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 The third time you go back through and you're a little more careful to make sure that you've got it right. And then I want people to write a single sentence that captures what's going on in each of these major parts. At that point, people are pulling out their hair. They're all seeing pens and their Talbot Cupid doll. I tell them that's fine. You know, go ahead. Uh, I can take the pain. Uh, you go ahead and uh, and torture me by sticking pins in the doll. They need to walk away at that point from um, reading the text. They need to have a few hours. They come back. They read the text again on what they have, and they try to decide whether or not it's right or wrong. And the other thing that I tell them is that they're going to have to reread these texts every day before class. That uh, they are not going to be able to understand. Uh, the depth of a really worthwhile book, because a really worthwhile book is like playing against your better in some athletic sport, such as if you want to become good at tennis, the way you become good at tennis is you get somebody who's better than you are, who you're playing against, who can place shots that you have a really hard time getting. I used to snow ski a lot, and I skied with two experts. And uh, doggone it, it meant that they at the top of the hill would say, see at the bottom, Mark, 
And I learned to ski really, really quickly. Maybe not much form, but I sure did learn to ski really, really quickly in just trying to keep up with them. Uh, reading's the same way. We tend to think in America that reading is a passive, passive activity, that you just kind of pass your eye over the page, you get the information. No, with deep books, what you're after is understanding. And understanding can only be gotten by wrestling with the text and by being able to stop and think about what you're reading and maybe turn back a few pages and read something that you know relates to what you're uh, dealing with now on a, on a uh, page a little further on. As I say to my students, you just cannot get, you and I would, I think, both agree with this, you can't get everything you need to be a deep Christian uh, by means of listening, by means of podcasts. And part of the reason is because they kind of go on in real time. And so uh, you say something or I say something, and um, uh, the, the podcast goes on with a book, with a codex. Uh, in other words, the sort of thing that we have, you can uh, move back and forth between pages, and you can stop and pause and think about something. The codex only became significantly important after um, uh, the Christian faith started to become important in the ancient world. And of course, Augustine uh, ultimately would have attributed the consolidation of his will so that he became uh, a Christian who would give himself fully to God by means of his having a codex, a book, in other words, of Paul's writings. He's in a garden. He just cannot turn his will fully to God. He goes to the edge of the garden and hears a little kid over the wall saying, Tola lega, tola lega, tola lega, take and read, take and read, take and read. He thinks, I don't know any game like this, but he takes that to be a word from God. He goes back, he opens up his codex, he opens up his book, and it falls on words that say, not in rioting, not in drunkenness, not in this or that. This is the way that one must follow the Lord. Remarkable passage. And so, in fact, he took that as to be directly to him a word of God, and one where he says he'd put his finger or something in the page in order to remember exactly where that was. Once again, that's what books do for people. Talking about books, reading story. I mean, you, you mentioned suffering comes oftentimes and I'm, I'm forgive me if I don't get the exact quote, right. But when the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves becomes insufficient in the face of our current circumstances, that's when suffering really occurs. And you, and you draw that out, which I, I really did appreciate. When you got into the general story, the, the particular story which we tell ourselves, why is story such an integral part of understanding our suffering? Well, if you think about what we are, Travis, we um, are people who must choose what we are going to do. Uh, the way that that we talked about philosophically is that we are agents. Mm -hmm. And it's not merely that we have the chance to do that. We must do that. Uh, if you and I don't choose to get up in the morning, then life is going to be pretty awful. And one of the things that happens when people get deeply depressed is that they quit choosing. They lose hope. They don't have a trajectory, something that they're after in the future. So what it means to be a human being is that you are somebody who chooses hopefully pretty deliberately what 
you're going to take to be good, what you're going to pursue as a good. Now, that pursuit requires a narrative. You have to have a sense of where you've been, where you're at, what it is that you want, and how you'll get there. Mm-hmm. One of my friends has a daughter who, from the time she was seven or eight, had decided she wanted to be a pediatrician. And in fact, when I think she was seven, she got into a magnet school and she came home and said to her folks, I've worked for this my whole life. (laughs) But but she meant it in the sense, seriously, that this was part of the trajectory that she wanted to follow. She right now is in one of the best hospitals in the nation uh, as a pediatric resident. And so everything has gone pretty much the way that she thought it would go. In college, I'm sure it meant that there were many nights when she uh, wasn't going to relax, wasn't going to have fun, but was going to work really hard so that she could get into a decent medical school. Once she was in medical school, she had to do something similar. She, for the first time, from what I understand, is actually dealing now with the fact that um, that being a pediatrician is going to be pretty hard because you see lots of things that are really disturbing. Children who have been abused in various ways, uh, many of the children are going to die of this or that. And so now, as she looks her way forward, as as she thinks her way forward through her trajectory, she realizes that, um, that what she's going to face is not going to be what shall we say, the kind of bliss that she thought it was going to be. I'm just going to take care of really young children, that there are going to be hard things. Now, in knowing about those hard things, she, for the first time, has the chance to kind of reorient herself and say, you know, nothing in this life is ultimately going to satisfy me. The only thing that can satisfy me is my being in personal relationship with God through Christ. And that's what has to happen to all of us. And that's what suffering does. It isn't so much that suffering comes along when we already realize that life is inadequate. It's instead that very often suffering is what leads us to realize that life is inadequate. Mm. Maybe the best passage in all of scripture on that is in Psalm 119, Mm -hmm. starting at verse 65. I actually wrote it down here because I thought it was so important. The psalmist says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. You are good and do good. It is good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted so that the purpose of my being afflicted was that uh, I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is now, the psalmist is saying, the law of your mouth is now better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, now the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119, I think, had to be very well educated and probably very wealthy because that psalm is so intricately crafted that um, it took somebody who had a lot of leisure in order to get the thing right. And so he knew what wealth could do for him. And yet his suffering had taught him that there's something that is much more valuable than wealth. And so he goes on then. um, He says, I know, O Lord, in verse 75, that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Mm. That's the picture 
um, uh, the New Living Translation uh, in place of before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word, says this, really rather marvelous. I used to wander off until you disciplined me, but now I closely follow your word. I used to wander off until you disciplined me, but now I closely follow your word. So suffering is very often God's way of being gracious to us and saying, look, at nothing in this life uh, is capable of satisfying you. Uh, you need an infinite good, is one of the ways that C.S. Lewis would put it. And all the goods in this world are just false infinites. And so none of them are capable of satisfying you. And quite often, it's only when the board is cleared of most of those false infants that we then realize, no, we're looking for something else. We're looking for the only true infinite who is God himself. We are looking for the only true infinite who is God himself. That's such an important point. Many people who have suffered will tell you that it's been an opportunity to grow. I mean, think about it. Go back, look over your life. Was it on the mountaintop that you grew the most? Or was it in the time that you were in the valley? When we look out over our lives, we can honestly say that it's during the times of suffering that we became closest to God. I really enjoy Mark's books especially the first one, because he grounds suffering in the stories of people in the Bible, people like you and me. So oftentimes we think that people in the Bible were so far removed, but when you zoom in, and this is why we want to explore the scriptures, is to show how these biblical characters and what they went through really apply to us today, that they're not so far removed, that as God worked and spoke to them and their faith and how they lived, it's not so far removed from where we're at now. That's why he brings in characters that many of us aren't as familiar with. Men and women like Naomi, Job, Jeremiah, and not all of the stories have neat endings. I mean, we know that Job's does, and so does Naomi's, but Jeremiah's doesn't. And in our world today, we want everything to have a nice bow, bringing everything back to its resolution where everything's going to be so great. But we're not guaranteed that on this side of eternity. We're going to have painful moments. There will be cancer. There will be hostility. There will be violence. There will be all kinds of suffering. But God has shown us in his word that he knows how to use that suffering. I know that's not a pleasant truth. And in fact, I think that much of the contemporary evangelical church is largely allergic to the idea. But God uses suffering to help us to get closer to him. I think that one of the reasons that many haven't embraced God or grown closer to him is because suffering, instead of being the hinge upon which they brought, were brought into the kingdom and drew nearer to God, ended up repelling them. That doesn't change, though, the truth of who God is or the purpose that God has for suffering. I know it's not a pleasant thought, especially if you're in the midst of suffering right now. But if you are, would you drop us a line so that we can pray for you? I mean, seriously, what is this ministry if we can't pray for people to bear one another's burdens? 
and we'll do our best to pray for that. We need one another. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be in community with one another. I want you to know that God is with you in the middle of it right now. That God sees your suffering and he loves you and he's there with you in the middle of it. Even when it all doesn't make sense. And I would recommend you getting Mark's book. It's not too long. It's just the right length. Because when the stars disappear, where do we find our guidance? Where do we turn? What did Paul do? Such a perspective is helpful. If you want to explore deeper, I would recommend reading volume two. Give me understanding that I may live. And next week, we're going to delve deeper into the conversation, tackling what we miss by not dealing with the subject of suffering, how this is a very tricky area to understand and much, much more. And before we conclude today, I want to remind you that we are looking for 10 new watering partners, and some of them should be from Tennessee. Tennessee, I see you. I'm not sure what's going on there, but we have seen such an uptick and our audience has grown in Tennessee. So whether you're at the gym, whether you're listening on your way to church, whether you're on your morning drive or just doing stuff around your house, we're so grateful to have you listening and become part of the Apollos Watered community. But please consider becoming one of our 10 new watering partners. Go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button and make a difference. I want to thank our Apollos Apollos Watered team for helping water the world for Jesus. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the road.